Well, friends, it is so good to be back here with you all. Uh, I mentioned last time I was preaching here back in December that Mercy is my home church, and it's just always such a pleasure to be back here and to, to worship our risen King with you all this morning. At this time in our service, we're coming now, of course, to the reading of God's Word, but also to the preaching of the Word as well. And so I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke 23, verse 44. And as you're turning there, I think it's important for us to know, even before we dive into this morning's passage, that this passage that we are about to read is most sincerely the single most sobering passage in all of Scripture. I'm convinced of that. It's concerning the death of our Savior in our place. And so accordingly so, as a little bit of a heads up, uh, the intonation of even this message will be appropriate to that as we consider the death of the Savior in our place for our sins. Now, as you have heard the preached word over you the past several weeks leading up to this point, this crucifixion scene, you have already considered the vehement accusations that have been heaped up against our Lord just a few passages before this one, even by the false shepherds and rulers of Israel, of all people. You've already considered and maybe visualized in your own mind's eye the unjust verdict of the people sentencing the eternal Son of God to death upon a cross. And you've already mulled over his being numbered among the most heinous of all criminals while yet pleading to the Father for their forgiveness of all things. So the scorn, the contempt, the agony, the anguish, the accusations, the utter madness of God's image bearers overrun with complete folly and wickedness all intertwined are now here in Luke 23, 44, leveraged against Christ the Savior. And yet, in Luke 23, verse 44 and following, as we're about to read, we will see the light of King Jesus that far outshines the darkness of sin that is present here. So without further ado, let's go ahead and come to the reading of God's word. Luke 23, which says the following to us. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their brows, their breasts rather. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to the decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked, the, asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, 
they rested according to the commandment. Friends, this is the reading of God's word. It is forever faithful and true and given to us in love. And while it's still fresh in our minds and on our hearts, I'd like to invite us to come before the throne of grace and pray to our Father and ask for illumination of this text. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us this time to hear from your word directly, and we know that um, it truly is inspired of you and authoritative over every single aspect of our lives. So God, we ask that as the Spirit goes to work within our hearts, applying the message of Christ and him crucified, uh, that we would take solace in this as a church body, but even as individual believers here this morning. I pray, God, that uh, you would use the preaching of your word to encourage and refresh our hearts exactly where it is needed. Use uh, me, Lord God, as an instrument of mercy to display your wonderful and all-powerful mercy as it's here given to us in the text. So we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, friends, as we seek to hear the message of the gospel, which is the primary concern for us this morning, is to arrive quickly at the gospel, of course. I want us to observe three vantage points in order to get us there. Three vantage points right from the text as well. First of all, the king's anguish that we see in the first three verses. Second, being the people's response. And third, more implicitly speaking, is our heart's consolation. So the king's anguish, the people's response right from the text, and even then as an application, our heart's consolation. Here in Luke 23, verse 44, these first three verses, I want to draw our attention to this again. It says this, that at the sixth hour, which would have been 12 p.m. noon by our own standard of keeping time, uh, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, the three, uh, 3 p.m., if you will, while the sun's light failed. That phrase is so interesting because in the Greek, the sun's light failing is literally the word for eclipse, meaning the sun was eclipsed. In other words, it was overtaken by some other force of nature in such a way that its rays could not even serve the very purpose for which they were created at the dawn of time. The purpose that God had given to the sun, the celestial being itself, to give life, physically speaking. And this eclipse of the source of photon kind of light took place around the time of its normal peak, ironically enough, right at 12 p.m. Now this real actual event was nothing short then of miraculous. There's no other way of describing it. But more than just a mysterious event, more than just mere happenstance even, uh, the eclipse of the sun here at this very hour, Christ upon the cross, was truly a divine indicator of something much more profound than simple darkness over the face of the land. It's a picture of dread, horror, disgust, shock. See, the theologian John Calvin puts it this way, that the glory of the Son of God was even in this very hour concealed for a short time during this darkness, even the literal darkness that was facing the land. In the Son's disfigurement and in his shame, in his lengthy suspension upon the splintered cross of wood for our sake, the Son, figuratively speaking, seemed to just turn its back upon the scene at hand. It had to hide its own face in shame at what was happening with this most gruesome of all events in redemptive history. 
For the very one who had spoken into the darkness at the dawn of creation and who had commanded light to simply be, as we see in Genesis 1, was now made in the Father's divine plan to bear the weight of sin. And while the account of all of this is certainly more than just mere poeticism, it is certainly not anything less than that thinking of this darkness covering the land and the shame and all of that that is conveyed here. Uh, For instance, the PCA pastor, Philip Ryken, who serves just a few hours from us, notes that the scene here is one of cosmic proportions. It's indicative, and it even foreshadows in some small part the final day of wrath against sin that is yet to still come. In Zephaniah 1, verses 14 through 16, it speaks of this coming day of wrath. Zephaniah 1 says the following to us. That the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. And catch this, the mighty man, singular, cries there aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Zephaniah 1. You see, friends, all of this is seen even in some small part here in the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. But that's not the end all in regard to this day of wrath. See, Christ himself, as you all have been working through the gospel of Luke, exegetically, as Brian's been preaching from this the past, I believe, year and a half now at this point, Uh, I know a few uh, months ago or so, you covered Luke 21, verses 25 through 28, and even there, Christ was foretelling that coming day of wrath in which even the sun would uh, forbear to shine. But this day here in which Christ was lifted off the ground, drawing the eyes of the watching world to himself and becoming a curse for us in our place, all of this here serves as a prefigurative witness of wrath. And it serves us in two distinct ways. First, it speaks to the satisfied wrath of God upon the cross, thankfully, for all of us who are in Christ. Essentially saying, it's over, it's done, it's made full, it's been completed and taken care of. But this also serves as a word of warning to us. For anyone who is not in Christ, there yet still stands an approaching day of just retribution against sin, yet to be exacted. And so there is a word of gospel truth, but also a word of warning here for us. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 speaks of the mystery of this great salvation so eloquently. So I'd love to even just quote this for you all. But Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says this, that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, which is what we see here in our text this morning. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But friends, this is so important for us to realize that even in the death of death, in the death of Christ, The Lord Jesus never ceased to be God. He never ceased to be divine, even though his body would soon lay in the ground. 
Rather, in sharp contrast, his divine majesty is attested to here, even in his crucifixion and burial for our sake, supremely. His substitutionary atoning death speaks volumes about his majesty and his glorious divinity. I love the way that John Calvin in his uh, Harmony of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, describes this redemptive event for our sake. He in essence says that the obscuration of the sun which took place here, let alone the earthquake and the splitting of the rocks that the account of Matthew brings to light, and also the rending of the temple's veil uh, that Scott was alluding to earlier in the reading of Exodus 26, all of this took place as if heaven and earth were rendering their homage that they owed to the Creator. And so friends, I cannot stress this point enough that the darkness that enveloped Christ, the cross of Christ even, on that day, and extended to all of the surrounding land, is indeed an act of God's infinite and transcendent power and even response to our sin and how he dealt with it. All of creation literally was here responding to the death of the image of the invisible God by whom all things were created, both invisible and visible. And as Colossians, as Colossians 1 says, by whom all things were uh, created, but he himself is before all things, and by him all things hold together. And so at the cross, all of these things seem to be unraveling before the feet of our Savior. But in the midst of this darkness that we read of here in Luke 23, we yet still read of the most alluring illuminating, and even sublime of all lights. A light that truly outshines the sun. The light of God's salvation. The light of God's mercy toward us. Sheer, undeserved mercy, secured by the sun and gifted to us by the Father of lights of all. The Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Father of lights whose natural disposition toward us, his own, is that of sheer divine mercy and who displays mercy here in the cross of Christ. And as such, we now walk in that light as those who have faith in him. As those who now walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have been made to taste the goodness and the always tender compassion of our loving Father in heaven. For he now views us as he does his only begotten Son, Christ in our place. And so as we relish his mercy, and as we begin to relish it even here in this moment, as we hear the gospel over us, we now arrive at a a right response to such things, and, and right reverence to his holy name, true homage and honor unto God. All of these things are now met with a true and familial access to the throne of grace, both in his holiness, but also in his fatherhood toward us in Christ. So friends, do you believe that both boldness and confidence are yours in Christ to come before your Father in heaven? However, thinking of such things, I don't know about you, but I'm immediately reminded of my own sin, my own inability to come before the throne of grace. 
See, we read of here that though the power of sin was defeated upon the cross for all who are in Christ, we know, of course, that we still wrestle with sin on a not just day-to-day basis, but a moment-to-moment basis. The fears and all the sins that we carry with us, we carry in our own members. And so the darkness of Luke 23, I believe, though, yet still serves us an even further uh, sign, if you will, a sign of remembrance a remembrance of the darkness of our own sin and the darkness to which we can so easily cling to rather than clinging to the light of Christ. And it serves in such, in such a way that we not be tempted to dismiss the evils and the idolatrous dispositions within our own hearts, yours and mine alike. See, beyond the divine judgment and the retribution for sin that we see here in the cross, the darkness enveloping it showcases to us the blinding helplessness that sin truly brings to each one of us. Contextually speaking, it was not mere happenstance that led Christ to the cross, of course. It wasn't mere human folly or ignorance that led the crowd to crucify their Lord and King. It was, after all, their hardened hearts. It was their spiritual deadness toward the goodness of God. It was a desolate stupor and a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us, and a rabid rebellion against all of God's authority, namely, the authority of his Son of Righteousness. Such is the plight of all of us in our own sin, especially apart from the sovereign mercy of God toward us in Christ. So friends, as a brief point of application, do you understand your own sinful nature in this light? Do you see the ugliness of sin in your own soul and the tendency to try to snuff out the authority of God in your own heart? Do you know that your sinful nature is this far gone without God's mediation in your place? And furthermore, are you acutely aware of your moment-by-moment internal dispositions and dealings in your soul to try to silence and push away the authority of God and forsake his law. Now, granted, we, of course, were not those who were there present in the scene that we just read about in Luke 23. It'd be a mistake to say that we were, of course, but do you believe that apart from God's saving grace, you and I would have just as easily have been there trying to rid ourselves of God's wisdom and rule over our lives? If so, if that is your honest heart's confession, of your own sin, that I would encourage you and, and welcome you even to hear the beauty of the gospel from this text as well. See, in the cross of Christ, we see an everlasting light that truly outshines the sun. We see beauty of supreme measure in the cross that raises us up out of the ash heaps of our own lives. We see the removal and the complete expiation of our own sin and all of its ugliness that attends it and all of our hostility against God just dispersed. But above all, we find mercy at the feet of Jesus. Mercy at the feet of him who sprinkled blood speaks a better word over us, the word forgiveness. So friend, if you are a believer in Christ, know and rest your mind upon this completely scandalous and yet utterly glorious truth 
that in your place Jesus died. In your place, the Son of God upon the cross drank down to the dregs the full cup of God's wrath for you. When sin was at its darkest, even literally here in this scene before us, the light of the world was on full display. And this light can never be shut up or failed or eclipsed by anything. And so all of the shadowy images of the cleansing, of the expiation, of the forgiveness of sins ordained by God in the Old Testament, of which we read earlier in Exodus, all of these things now here in the cross met their intended meaning and fullness as the Lamb of God stood in your place and mine. And so it's no surprise then that the curtain which separated the Holy of Holies, again, which we also read of earlier, in the physical temple of Jerusalem was now split by the hand of God Most High. From top to bottom, he rent it, and that thick veil lay now utterly useless. The mercy seat, which the high priest would approach on that day of atonement, was now open, exposed, and made visible to all who were there present in the temple at that time. For in this moment, Christ, the high priest and mediator of the better covenant, the covenant of grace, achieved and finished that work of our redemption. And crying aloud upon the cross, the words of Psalm 31, verse 5, he echoed these words of the psalmist as the true singer of the psalms himself. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, with these words still hanging and just looming in the air, your salvation was secured once for all time. For he committed not only his soul to the Father in that final breath, but he committed your soul and mine for all of us who are bound up in Christ in covenant with him. Our souls now are forever in safe and good keeping with God the Father. Now, this brings us to a huge transition in our own text. And so I want to lead us now to the people's response that we begin to see here in verses 47 through 56. And admittedly so, uh, these next two points will be uh, much shorter than the first one. But this brings us to a point of just recognizing their response that we see. Again, if you were to visualize in your own mind's eye being there present before the cross itself, what would be the feelings that you would be um, noting in that time yourself? Perhaps the sensation of shock would overwhelm your whole being as you witness these things come to pass before you. Perhaps a, uh, chills would run up and down your spine as you saw this event. Perhaps a tightening in your gut would just be gripped and would grip you. Well, the Word of God speaks so eloquently to such things immediately following the death of Christ in Luke 23, verses 47 through 56. And so I'd love to turn our attention to this last half of our passage this morning here. Here in verse 47, again, we see this interior nearby as we read earlier. He declares this, this short statement of confession. Certainly this man was innocent. And as a centurion, he was the head over uh, scores of soldiers, and 
would oversee the affairs of literally hundreds of people at any given time and would have to be very knowledgeable of all that was going on around him. And so surely here by this time, as Luke singles him out as the only centurion who confesses these things, he had taken in the whole of the crucifixion. And yet for some odd reason, he couldn't contain, whether he was a believer or not at this time, he couldn't contain the glory and the majesty of God in this. However, in stark contrast, we see the response of the crowd. Among this crowd were those who drove our Savior himself to the cross in the first place, those who were crying out, crucify, crucify him, just hours earlier. But now they were covered in shame, swelling up with the strongest emotions of guilt and disgust at the realization of what they had done to the living Savior. And so, irony of ironies, they pulled in Adam and Eve, like our first parents, and went home beating their own breasts, covered in shame, and sought to cover themselves with their own figurative fig leaves, if you will, the roofs of their own homes before the face of God. Meanwhile, the acquaintances of Jesus that we read of, and especially the women in particular who had followed him at a distance, just simply took all these things in. It says they stood by and and watched these things. Surely they were stunned. They couldn't move. They were certainly dismayed, and yet the beauty of their response is that they refused to disassociate themselves with Jesus, even in his death. But moving along in our passage here, we come to a remarkable turn of events, if you will, right there in verse 50. See, it's interesting how Luke, the gospel writer, makes this transition here himself. Um, Last time I was preaching here at Mercy back in December, I I noted that Luke loved to use the Greek word edu, uh, meaning behold, to make these huge sweeping transitions as he touched upon different redemptive elements of the gospel presentation of his account. And here in verse 50 is no exception. Uh, In our English, the ESV says now, but the Greek there is actually behold, edu, behold this. Something new is on the horizon. And here, I believe, we begin to see the first expressly Christian response to the death of Christ. And that's what makes this so unique. And this response to the death of Christ takes up this form of obedience to his lordship and even a form of what some may call Christian dissidence or a sanctified response to the secular society around us and the ways of this world. Here we see Joseph of Arimathea in verse 50 come to the occasion and even rise to the occasion to honor the Lord Jesus by burying him before the arrival of the Sabbath within less than three hours' time. Verse 52 notes that Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And reading a little bit further, it says this, that he then took it down, meaning the body from the cross, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut, in, a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. As we seek to understand this, we must first and foremost recognize that all of this was done by God's sovereign hand lest we give any tribute to Joseph or try to exalt any human here in this story rather than Christ. See, apart from God's grace or what you might call divine intervention, 
none of this would have happened. See, apart from grace, one would have never dared to identify with Christ and his suffering, let alone his death. One such man as Joseph of noble repute would have never given up his entire reputation before his peers in the legislative council of that day, or as we see earlier in in, uh, Luke. Apart from God's sovereign grace and divine intervention, the timing of the burial, let alone the will of man, like Pilate even, or Joseph or others, let alone even the location of the tomb so close by to Golgotha, which was prepared long in advance, would have never even come to be or been provided. And so yet here we see God's mysterious hand of providence working in the most bleak of all situations. And so friends, in order to read this text aright then, I believe that we need to see the circumstances in this light, the light of grace. Again, so that we do not exalt man in any way, but rather exalt God. So let's take a look at what happens here in verse 50 through 51. It says this again, verse 50, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. It's interesting because in Mark's parallel passage, Mark 15, verse 43 specifically, Mark adds the word chi, which is translated also from the Greek, He was also looking for the kingdom of God. And this little word speaks volumes of the fact that Joseph, of all people, refused to stop seeking the kingdom of God in this time. And to go a little bit further, he refused to even disassociate himself with Christ. Joseph's desire here, in essence, was then to honor Christ. And this superseded his place of prominence in that society amongst the other Jews, his position of authority amongst the elders of Israel, and caused him to divide from them in matters of divine jurisdiction, what really mattered. His devotion to Christ was then chiefly a response to grace, but it was a response that would cost him everything. And praise God, we do not have the answer right in front of us of how that would have played out. However, this does play an important role for us as followers of Jesus, I believe, in terms of an application. See, are we ones, as followers of Christ to this day, are we those who have counted the cost of our own discipleship as we follow Christ? Are we ones who are willing to bear the ridicule of obedience to the Lord in lieu of the rising trend of popularized injustices and even immorality all around us and in our own culture? forms of lawlessness that are becoming sanctioned by and by in our own society? Are you, as an individual, decided in your own mind to not consent to the actions of ungodly men who would oppose the will of God as it's given to us explicitly in his word? Are you one of those whose eyes are so fixed and set upon the kingdom of righteousness that you would seek to adorn the gospel if it even cost you everything that you know? And are you one who will even seek to adorn the gospel in both your public living and private lives when no one else is watching you? If so, may the Spirit of Christ, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, give us such boldness and grace to yet do good as and while we suffer for righteousness' sake. 
And furthermore, may we discern with accuracy, sobriety of mind, yet also with gentleness and total self-control by the Spirit, exactly how we can and should respond to the present evils in our own world. Friends, this leads us to our final and very brief point of application, what I'm calling our heart's consolation here. That's just a brief takeaway for us. And so in light of this challenge, in light of the response we even saw from the believers, I want us to set just for a moment or two on this idea of the consolation that is here for us in this text. See, we live as those who are not like Joseph and the women in this scene, obviously. We live as those who are now supremely under the rule and reign of Christ, who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and who loves us and who safeguards us in every way. Next week, uh, Pastor Brian, our dear friend, will preach to us from Luke 24. And I believe from what I've heard from him, uh, it's actually going to be a three-part series on the resurrection. So I'm excited for you all to go over that and recognize the King of Majesty in all of his glory raised from the dead. But in our specific passage this morning, we are left with the scene of helplessness, of hopelessness, when all that seemed so lost. And so I think it's appropriate that we deal with it as such as we even seek to apply this. See, the women in verse 55 watched Joseph bury Christ's body. They were most assuredly stunned to the core of their very being. But I love the language that Luke employs here as he describes even the burial scene itself. See, notably, the women apparently paid attention to every last detail of how he was buried and even took part in it in some small way. And I believe that Luke uses that word how there in verse 55 so intentionally to draw something special to our attention. It's this, that they refused to let their minds be consumed by lesser things than Christ. They refused to, again, like Joseph, disassociate themselves with Christ even in his death when all hope was lost. Rather, they let the significance of the crucifixion sink into their souls. They sat in it for a while. They didn't rush away in agony like the crowds did before them. Rather, they pondered it. They couldn't comprehend it fully, most certainly. They didn't know the power of Christ's resurrection to come. But they refused, again, to disavow their Lord. And so when they finally did return home, right before 6 p.m., when the Sabbath would start, they swiftly prepared spices and ointments in order to bring it to the Lord as soon as the Sabbath was over to honor his body. And they made diligence to even observe the Sabbath and to obey the law of God in such a way by refraining from all work in the meantime. This then, I believe, demonstrates for us the beauty and the art of worshiping God in the valleys that we face. The valleys of desolation that we all are familiar with as believers, whether you've been a believer short, for a short or a long while yourself. Those times when we are met with confusion as to the workings of God in our lives, when the countenance of God seems to be so distanced from us personally, when our friends or our family fall prey to the empty philosophies of this world, when our hearts seem to break within us and when the struggles of our own souls are too much to bear, how then in these times, the valleys, so to speak, or the times of darkness and helplessness, do we then relate to God in light of such things? 
Well, the answer to all of these complexities, though complex as they are, is rather straightforward and simple as the Scripture gives it to us. And it's this, that we are to know the heart of our Father in heaven. That we are to know the God of mercies in light of our present sufferings. That we are to know even his once and for all time settled disposition on us in love as is displayed here in the cross of Christ. For as Romans 8 says, if the Father did not spare his own Son, but rather gave him up for us all, how will he not also with the Son graciously give us all things, especially as it pertains to the sustenance of our own faith? Brothers and sisters, then I pray for you, of course, in this way, but pray for the Spirit to help you as well in your weakness to open your eyes and to see the glory of the risen Christ, even in these times. Let your minds be saturated so much with the word of Christ that it is made to not only dwell within your hearts by faith, but even that it would have its full effect in how it plays out in your interactions. Hear by faith and know in your heart the mere and and just sincerity of Jesus' invitation to you to simply come to the waters and buy without money or price from him. And as such, then, let your soul cease from all of its vain strivings after the wind and choose, as these women did in this passage, to Sabbath and rest as opposed to striving all the more. For truly, as Romans 8 tells us as well, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Friends, in closing, as one final word, if our worship of Christ is fastened and fortified all the more, even in times of suffering, when we recognize that we suffer with the sufferings of Christ even in that way, how much more beautiful will our worship be when we worship out of a mind that is knowledgeable of his resurrection? But that we'll have to save for next week. (laughs) There's a little bit of a cliffhanger for you. Uh, With that in mind, let's go ahead and come before God in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are no longer dead, of course. You have been raised from the dead, conquering over Satan, sin, and death. And now, having led a host of captives even, you are the one who reigns on high. Overseeing us and, and superseding all things and all of creation and heaven and earth. And we thank you that through this word that you've given to us, even in the most bleak of all passages of scripture, we see your beauty on display. And we see the majesty from on high. So Jesus, as we sit a little while, sit a little while rather, in the agony of the cross and even the helplessness of the burial that we read about, may we be people who are not helpless or hopeless at the end of the day, but rather those who take sure confidence and faith in the fact that you are indeed raised from the dead. And even now, forever intercede for us. Jesus, use this simple gospel presentation to remind us of all these wonderful truths that we need to hear day by day and stir up within our hearts a new song of praise before you this morning. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.